and welcome to Spooks, that's S-P-O-O-K-S, your podcast with the mostest, again hosted by me, the professional Mr. Myrick, as opposed to, to Douglas Skelton. Now, with me today is a man of many parts, um, and I have to greet him in the Skelton fashion, and by saying, hello Gordon Brown, can you hear me? I can hear you, Denzel. Yes, and you have got through to Gordon Brown and not the ex-Prime Minister. I wasn't going to say that because you must get fed up with that kind of stuff. Never stops. Never gets old either. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you could maybe just get a bit closer to your microphone, Gordon, that would be superb. Just a wee bit closer, that would be fantastic. Is that better? That's fine, thank you. Um, now, as we say, Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister, I mean, I, I somebody actually asked me once, are you any relation to Denzel Washington? <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm a very close relative, but that just shows you how some people are. Now, Gordon, you are the son of a police officer, am I right? I am, yeah. My father was a police officer with what was Glasgow Police all those years ago, back in the 60s and 70s. Good gracious. Um, in the dim in the and distant past, you know, you know, it's a strange story about the Glasgow Police, but when Strathclyde took it over, um, the Glasgow Police resolutely refused to change their badging and their cap badges for, for long and weary. Um, and they, they stuck to the old numerals and the old cap badges that they'd had when they were the Glasgow Police. Did you know that? I knew, well, it was used to be, there was A Division, F Division, and they, that, that's how they greeted each other. They knew each other by divisions. So my dad was the same. He had A Division because it was central. He was based at Turnbull Street, which no, I don't Turnbull know if the police own it anymore, but it, it, used, it turned into the museum. But for years, that's where he used to be. So his area was kind of the east end of Glasgow, that bit of the east end of Glasgow in the centre of Glasgow. So yeah, years he was there. Well, I was in the A Division also, but it was the new, shiny new Stuart Street I was um, in by that time. Um, a very, now, as with policemen, and my father was an ex-naval man. He was in the Navy for 30 years, Royal Navy. I'm sure your father imparted many stories to you. Uh, have you used any such a, such stories in the, the, the progress of your, your books? I, actually, I hadn't because uh, it, the first book I wrote was kind of from the criminal's point of view, Falling, which is about what, eight or nine years ago now. And I used little bits of it, little bits and pieces. But recently I was playing around with a story um, and I started to use stuff my dad told me. But I don't know if you know, Denzel, you might know this because you were a police officer. I tended to find that my dad didn't tend to tell many stories out of school. He would when there was other policemen no. there. But when he was in with the family, it was it was like pulling teeth to find out what had gone on. And yeah. the odd story you can through, for instance, my father was a marksman in Aden in the army. So when he did his national service, he was the champion for the area for a couple of years. Well, so when he came back, he was he was issued or in those days it was the fire firearms officers. It wasn't like it was a special division, it was just certain no, no. had had a license for the firearms. And my dad's favourite story, which he used to tell, and I, I I've never known if this is true, but it was a great story because he used to tell it, which was about two in the morning he got a phone call, which is what used to happen. Get whisked up to the north of Glasgow, way outside his area, and the sergeant's sitting there and they, they, they issue the weapons and they tell him that the guy had been in the pub that night with a shotgun, had gone a bit nuts, shot the place up, hadn't killed anybody, hadn't injured anybody, but the pub was now empty and the guy was in there and it was my dad and my dad's mate, who's the other firearm officer, your job to go in and get him. 
Uh -huh. my, dad, my dad was like, really? Like, you're kidding me. He said, he's in there with a shotgun. There's nobody else in there. He says, just wait. No, no, you need to go in. So the two of them crept up to the front door, opened the first door, walked into the wee space between it and the next door, opened the second door, and there's two barrels of a shotgun facing my dad. My Good dad great. stopped. But then all they heard was... Right. <laughs> Turns out what the guy had done was the guy had got drunk. Well, he hadn't got drunk. He'd gone in. He had a grievance. Don't know what the grievance was. Everybody ran away. He then started shooting up the pub. Then he realized right. nobody was coming in. Hit the bar. Drank himself into a coma. Yeah, Fell asleep. So by the time my dad got there, he was out for the count. And my dad was about to walk back out the door and just say, let's tell everybody. And my dad's mate goes, no, 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 no. Hang on a minute. We can make this look much better if we just give it a few minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> so they, they hung around for 10 minutes and eventually brought them back out going, that was tough. We had to talk them down there. It was really... <laughs> oh, that, that's, that, that sounds just a bit typical for A-Division, I would think. Um, your, your father, so having been in Aden, he would have been under the command of the Mad Mitch. Oh, God, you know what? I don't know that, Denzel. I've ne he never really talked much about it because... It was it was before it, when he left. He used, he came from Fraserburgh up in the northeast shoulder of Scotland, and when yep. he went when he came back, he should have went home, and he didn't. He decided he wanted to go to Glasgow. So when he came back, my mum used to say he never talked about it much. Just it was one of those things. He just I don't know whether it's because it was national service and you had to do it, but I think my dad tended to be in those days a man's man. If he was with his mates, they would talk about that. They talk about football. In the house, it was difficult to get stories out, my dad. It's just the way he was. Yeah, I think that that would be the same. But I, I mean, I, I think even with in the years um, after, you know, following his retirement, he'd probably be a bit more forthcoming. But you know, when you're when you're actually doing the job itself and everything's fresh, I think it's sometimes very difficult from many standpoints to be able to to communicate that with your family, and you don't want them involved because some of these a lot a lot of the tales that he would have no doubt. The, the, the cases he'd have been involved with were, would be very traumatic. Well, the funny oh. thing is, my dad never never went above constable. He never wanted to. So what he wanted to serve on the beat, and he just wanted to stay on the beat, and that was what he liked. And to be fair, a lot of the guys, you'll know this, but back then, a lot of pressure was put on people as years went on to say, you know, do your sergeant's exams, then do your this, that, and the other. But a lot yeah. of the, see if you talk to the duty sergeants, a lot of them wanted experience beat police to stay because <clears throat> it was worth its weight in gold if you had someone on the street that had 15 years under their belt because they could handle more or less anything whereas if you kept cycling in you guys so my dad was one of those he just loved to be on the, the other side of the equation though is we did benefit somewhat from a surfeit of um, shall we say new technology arriving in our house before it arrived anywhere else in the UK. <laughs> They were the first people I ever knew that had a video recorder. And so early we had it that I got beaten up at school one day for claiming I'd, I was recording programs because no one believed me. We got oh first colour television we knew wow. in the scheme. Yeah, first color, first hi-fi in the scheme. Yeah, And even we had the first Afghan hound in the scheme. Wow. With the I mean, Afghan uh, hound. <laughs> I can imagine. My father was the same. We, he was in the Navy and we used to get all these things with... HMS, oh, Her Majesty's Stationery Office, like pens, yep. the toilet seat, um, toilet paper, these cigarettes, lighters, lamps. I mean, it was like living on board a ship. Our problem was that we also had football. Was my dad loved his football. 
and he was never forgiven. He, my, my grandfather, his father, was general secretary, manager, various other things at Fraserburgh Football Club for about 30 years. Wow. Father, father was supposed to be an Aberdeen supporter, and then he changed allegiance when he came to Glasgow, became a Rangers supporter, and as a result, was never really forgiven by my grandfather. I can imagine. And my grandfather had a great. My grandfather had one of the best jobs ever, and he used to con me into doing it. My grandfather was a representative for the Scottish FA for the northeast of Scotland, so he covered everything from Aberdeen round to Elgin across towards Inverness. Right. In those days, whenever the tickets came in, the two big games every year were the Scottish Cup final and the old firm in it, or the Scotland England game, the old the Scotland England game, the annual game when it was of course. And the tickets were like gold dust. And what my, my grandfather used to get me to do was in his bedroom, he had a tiny one little two two bedroom flat in Fraserburgh. He would just take this big pile of tickets that he got as his allocation, a big pile of envelopes, and my job was to sit and sort them out, put them into <laughs> the right envelopes, and then he would take them and hand them on. I had no idea how much money I was handling at the time. They were worth a wow. fortune. Of course they were, yeah, what yeah. Did I get? I got a sweet <laughs> That sounds a bit right. I mean, that's, that's fair enough. You know, my father was a rugby fanatic, being Welsh. And the, the apocryphal story in his village was that they couldn't get tickets for the Wales-England game at, at um, the, the old Cardiff Farms Park. So what they decided to do was dress up as ambulance men because on working on the basis that nobody's going to turn an ambulance man away from the the, the stadium. <laughs> so that, did it work? Well, apparently it did. And it, it was an, I think it was a game against Ireland back in 73 or 74. And if you look to the left-hand side of the old images of that, you can see this band of ambulance men all sitting in the, the north stand <laughs> in rows and rows of them, but I think I think the the Welsh uh, RFU got got um, got wise to that and decided no that, that you know no more ambulancemen next year, uh, only ones with official passes. So yeah, your father was obviously a big influence in your life, Gordon. He was. Um, he died young. That was. I, my oh, did he? Died. I was forty-seven when my father died. So well, that 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 is really young, and that was just twenty. Not... So at the time, it was. I mean, not that young. But uh, it had a. I had an effect because then my mother was in her own after that. So there's of course. my three brothers. So it was, it was it was younger. I wish I could have got to know my dad better because I was just getting to the age where I could have a conversation as opposed to being a kid. But that's the way these things go. Yeah, I mean, it's always sad when you lose a parent and especially so, um, I mean, my, I was 36 when my parents died, but it's still always... Was injurious to to the spirit, and I think that's when your your own mortality really flashes before your very eyes, isn't it? Yeah, it does. It does, and it, it puts things in perspective as well because you realise you, whatever time you think you have, you don't necessarily have it. You, you, making more yeah. the moment becomes something that suddenly comes into to focus when something like that happens when you're younger. So that, that's very very true. So. Um, so after that sad event, you decided to go down a career of, I mean, you've been involved in advertising and sales, marketing. Tell us a wee bit about how you got into to that, please, Gordon. Well, I start my, I went to university at Strathclyde, so I did three weeks Strathtech, of you to call it. Strathtech, yeah, I used to get called that as well. But yeah, I, yeah, that's good. When I did Strathclyde, I, was, I did three weeks of civil engineering because I was at school. I did it, I, my last year was engineering, science, maths physics and I can't remember what else and I thought I'm going to be an engineer three weeks into it I hated it absolutely hated it I, ju I just didn't want to do it 
So I flipped sure. the course and I went to do marketing. And only because it was one of the few courses that were accepting you in once you had so many weeks under your belt. A lot of the other courses were saying, no, you'll have to wait a year. So I did marketing. And for no other reason than I just quite fancied it. And it was quite a general thing. I used to do industrial relations and administration, all sorts of courses during it. But I yep. kind of stuck into it and I, I, I enjoyed it. And when I got to the end, I thought, right, what's my career? And I was, oh, I went on what used to be called the milk round, which was all these companies used to roll in in fourth year, you know, turn up at the yeah, yeah. university, you booked an interview, you went down, if they liked you, you might go and get a proper interview. And I went for interview after interview and got nowhere until suddenly <laughs> of all the people, Sainsbury's, who at the time didn't even exist in Scotland, Jay Sainsbury's said, yes, yeah. go for an interview. So I went to an interview in London. I got the job, and it was graduate training, working in sunny, uh, sunny Putney, living in Fulham and working in Putney as an assistant manager in the produce department, graduate trainee in brackets. And uh, uh -huh. that's what I did for about four months until I started talking to other people that were graduate trainees. And I wanted to do marketing. I didn't want to spend my life, you know, putting away vegetables or frozen food. But you have to save your time. But I met all these people that had been on the program. And out of all of the ones I met, I met nobody that had managed to get into the marketing department. And I thought, this is a bit of a con. What they want is managers that are graduates. And they've kind of come through the back door. So uh -huh. I was because I was down there, I hated it. My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, had just flown to Canada on a student exchange to work oh, in no. Toronto. So I decided, Broken heart. Well... I decided at the end of it, got to Christmas, I phoned up my mum, I said to my mum, I've got 300 quid in the bank, see if you can book me a return flight to Toronto. Jacked my job in, flew out to Toronto with nothing to work, no job, no nothing, to see my wife, Leslie, or my girlfriend, Leslie, with no idea what I was going to do. And for the first eight weeks, six or seven weeks, to earn money, because I needed cash, I had nothing, I ended up, um, the next door neighbour to, to where my wife lived, he had a full-time job. But when he was a kid, he had polio, so he'd ended up with calipers in both legs. Oh dear. There's, a, there's a reason for this story, because he was always short in money. He liked gambling and he liked various other things. So he found this job at a pizza place called Pizza Pizza, which is like Domino's in Toronto. And effectively yep. what he did is he drove and I delivered. So he drove, and so we, ha we had to deliver twice as many pizzas as anybody else in order to <laughs> make money, because you only get paid per pizza, and it wasn't that much. So and there's two of you. I was two of us. So we spent six weeks rally driving north of Toronto, delivering as many pizzas. We'd start at eight at night and finish at four. And we, I did that for weeks to earn money. And it was great. Wow. We, it was just an insane life. It was All we did was kind of work till four or five in the morning, went to bed, got back up and started working again. But it was just the only way I could get money when I was in Toronto. And, and Toronto is a beautiful city, isn't it? I mean... Yeah. Uh, I'm one of my favourite YouTubers <clears throat> is from Toronto and he broadcasts from there um, Unbox Therapy, have you ever come across this chap? Good Well I would recommend if you're interested in gadgets, mobile phones and computers and laptops and right. you know iPads and things go and seek out Unbox Therapy because he reviews all these things in a really entertaining way Um <clears throat> that was just a plug for Unbox Therapy. And I hope I hope he'll come and sponsor us. So, Gordon, you, you establish yourself in a career in marketing. You're involved with people like um, STV. In fact, you're involved with some quite famous adverts that people will remember. Can you tell us which ones and how they came about? Well, 
when I came back from Canada, luckily in Canada, after about six or seven weeks, I managed to get a job with the brewery, Carling O'Keefe, which doesn't exist anymore, but you know Carling Lager, they were the original owners of it in the 50s. Yes. And then when I came back to the UK, with the choice of staying, we decided to come back. I got a job with a company called Bass, and Bass was the brewer at the time. And in Scotland, ah, my favourite. In Scotland, Bass is tenants. Yes, exactly. One way and the other, I eventually ended up being the brand director at Tenants. In the late 90s, I ran the marketing department for Tenants for about six or seven years. Dream uh, job. It was a great job, a wonderful job. We made, we, do you remember the red tea ads? So like Masochist and Sadist and um, yes. various different ones. That I, they, all but the first two were mine. The first two were my boss. And then from then on in, about, I don't know sure? we made. We made a lot of those ones. Uh, wow. And... Those ads, they, they, they worked phenomenally well. We, God, I can't remember the year. The first couple of years we did that, we won award after award, and the sales were just phenomenal. Yeah, they were famous. But it was just fun because, we'd, to be fair, we had a sizable budget. I reckon back then we had about five million quid for the marketing budget for Scotland alone. So we also did things like Tea in the Park. So I got to play with Tea in the Park. We sponsored the Cups, so Tennis Scotch Cups. I got to play with football. The advertising, so I got to make ads. We even made ads abroad. In fact, the... the, the, the the weirdest one, and this 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 takes a bit of explaining. Do you remember a brand called Tenants Velvet? I do. Yes. I remember it well. I remember it being tried out. It was like fizzyless beer, a lager, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like it was like smooth ale. So it was like uh, CO2 oh, delivered by nitrogen instead of uh, CO2. CO2, so it was yeah. Two gauges to settle, a bit like Guinness, that sort of settling. Well, yeah. I, when I took on the, the the senior job in Tenants. The the the, uh, the the woman in Paul, the woman who was the brand manager for Tenants Velvet had just signed off or got me to sign off a set of ads for Velvet, but they were using you know Colin Mockery, Ryan Styles, Linda Cash, you know the whose line is it anyway? Crew. Yes, I do. Yeah. Well, they'd agreed to do it, but only if we shot the ads in Los Angeles, which which is fair enough. So oh, why not? Me, 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 and the brand manager <laughs> uh, flew to Los Angeles for a week to shoot. A series of ads which were effectively whose line is it, it ripoffs. These guys just spent two days making stuff up and we would then cut it into ads. But as a result, we actually shot it indoors. So we flew all the way to LA to shoot <laughs> ads indoors. There was no reason other than the fact Ryan Styles at the time wouldn't fly. So the justification for us flying business class, of course, to LA for a week was the fact that we had to make the ads. What a life. It was, it was as well. And STV was uh, later on in life when I, I set my own business up about 2000, which is a marketing strategy business. I was called in, oh, God, what was that, 2000, I can't even remember now, 2007, 2008, when Scottish Television and Grampian Television were putting themselves into one brand. Uh, yeah, merging, yeah, yeah. The MD, a guy called Bobby Hayne asked me in because my brand experience to help them do that, which then ended up being the creation of STV. So I can end up running the STV marketing department for a couple of years as well, which wasn't the intention. It just kind of, every day I'd come in, Bobby would hand me a new employee and say, by the way, could you look <laughs> after on-screen promotions? Could you look after, you know, viewers' inquiries? Could you look after? And that, so I, I, I think it was a team of 11 by the time I actually decided do you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and get a bit more serious in my writing. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, you've had two of the best jobs in Scotland. I mean, brand manager for tenants, brand director, and, you know, virtually in charge of STV. Why did you bother writing in the first place? The writing was a hobby. And, and I, I, the, the funny thing is, although I've, I tried various different attempts at books, but I never really took it seriously. The first time I tried to write something when I was about 20, I was in Crete. 
and, and I saw this, I was there with a whole bunch of mates, and we were on a Jeep, you know the usual, there's eight of you in a Jeep designed for four, you're out in the middle of nowhere, we're hanging off the back of it, and this guy goes packed with a huge backpack, massive backpack, and I just wondered where he went, and I ended up, got to where we were going, got to the cafe at this beachside, and thought, I've got this idea for a story called Drifter, that's what it was called, and I, I couldn't, nothing to write on, so I said to the waiter, have you, you know the wee pads, the wee tiny pads about the size of an iPhone that they use for taking your order when, you know, you're, you're yes. sitting in a cafe? He had one of those, so I, I, I filled that up with the start of the story. I borrowed another one of them. When we got back to the flat, I went and bought a jotter out of the newsagent. I then bought another uh-huh. jotter. When I got home, I bought an A4 book, and I wrote the whole thing longhand in about, it's on about nine or ten different jotters, books, various bits and pieces. And Good then, I left it alone, and about two years ago, I thought, I'm going to go and have a read of that, because I never did anything with it. Now I know why you have to spend time getting good <laughs> Yes. Oh, my God. However, at least I, I had a go at it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I mean, Tony Blair famously wrote his memoirs longhand, if you remember, using, not, not only that, he was using a, a, a fountain pen as well. So can you imagine? I, I don't know why he chose. I mean, that's you know, we'll leave the the comments about Tony Blair for others to 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 make up. Um, so you get into writing and specifically into crime fiction. Am I right? Well, it was a bit of a fluke in terms of what I got into. So what happened at STE was I was contracted in. I wasn't an employee, and then what happened was that. They kind of talked to me about a longer-term job, and I just didn't want to do it. I wasn't going back five days a week to one job because at the time I had multiple clients, and I quite liked it that way. So what I said was, I'm going to stop this in about June time. Of, uh, mm-hmm. And then what I said to my wife, I'm going to give it one more go at writing. Like I, Literally, I've got two or three things that I've started or done, never took it anywhere. And I had one line in mind, which was this line, uh, the, last thing I ever, the last thing I wanted to do was fall. And, and, and the reason that line came into my mind was I, I'd read a story years ago about a guy during the Depression in New York who tried to throw himself off a building because he'd lost everything yep, and failed. He failed sure. one story in, out of the building and landed in the ledge below and ended up in hospital with minor injuries. And then something like 30 years later, he said to his wife, what if I died that day? You know, what, what, what if I hadn't been here? You know, what, what would the world be like? A bit like, you know, um, it's a wonderful life. What if I had not been here? And her words were, well, why don't you go and ask some of the people, not me, because she's obviously got, you know, a vested interest. So he went, so he went, yeah. to, uh, which he went to his brother and he said to his brother, and the first thing his brother said is, well, you're the reason I met my wife. And if I'd not met my wife, our son wouldn't have been born. And our son's now a heart surgeon in New York. And he went on this journey. And he found all these people, really tangential people, who he'd influenced in some small way. And that gave me this idea for a book where a guy was supposed to die, but doesn't. Yeah. And so I, I wrote it. I spent three months writing it, a month editing it, and then I sent it to four publishers. Mm-hmm. And I got a letter back from one saying, we're really interested, which you know, Denzel, is not very usual. That's, that, that's kind of... No, that is the, no, you're doing well there. However, I, the, I'd sent the usual three chapters and a synopsis and a letter. And they said, could you send the rest of the book? I went, oh, bloody brilliant. <laughs> so I'm on the computer, get the file, zapped it across. Small publisher still exists called Fledgling over in Edinburgh. Sent it to Guess one, one. Xander Wedderburn, who's no, sadly no longer with us. But Xander took it 
I got a phone call t- two days later, and, and Xander, Xander says, this is, this, is, uh, this is interesting. Could you come through and see me? Oh, what bloody brilliance. I get in the train, go through to Edinburgh, meet with Xander in his house, have a cup of coffee. And Xander says, you know what? He says, see the first three chapters you sent me? He said, they were really good. I really liked that. See the rest of it, if I'm honest, it's a bit shite. And I was like, sorry. <laughs> he said, well, it's just full of typos and mistakes. And he said, some of it's not in the right order. And I went, no, no, I spent a bit of time on it. I might, it might not be perfect, but I spent a bit of time. Yeah, you went, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'd done? I was so thrilled at getting anything like an offer, not an offer, just interest from a publisher. Instead of sending the proper file, I sent one from about a month before. An old buggered up file of the first start, whatever I'd written at the time, and it was a mess. Yep. But he still signed me up to do two books. Oh, there you are. So now that was a lucky, lucky break. And it wasn't meant to be crime. I just, I just, I quite, I've, I've always kind of written from the the other side of the the fence. I've not written from the police's side to the fence. I've always written from the criminals or in the McIntyre yep. series, which comes later. I've written from the guy who's outside of the, 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 the authorities, outside of the bodies. I've, I've always kind of liked writing from that side. So that, that was the reason. Crime just turned out to be more fun. It just, it, when I wrote Falling, it wasn't a crime story I started. It, was just, it just became one. I, th- I think a lot of us, I think Douglas and I have this conversation quite often, and that is that um, you know, crime, crime writing per se is becoming such a crowded place to be now. Uh, you know, with the advance of, of self-publishing on places like Kindle and Hulu and various others, it's, it, you know, and everyone wants, seems to want to write about crime. Um, I think the, the obvious reason for this is, is because the, the people perceive it to be the most lucrative of the genres. But, but, I mean, even in the time I've been published, that was way back in 2012, things have changed hugely. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I think they have. I think they've moved on. I think I think crime became so crowded because, for that very reason, it's popular. I mean, I remember talking to Watersons a few years ago, and they were talking about one in four of every single book that walked out of Watersons. That's just huge scale when you think of the genre. But I think the other thing that's happened is it's split into so many subgenres. Britain's not so bad, but Denzel, you know this, if you go to the States, that there's subgenres of subgenres of subgenres of crime in America. Everything from cat detectives through to, you know, animal detectives, food detectives to yeah. hard boiled crime through to comedy through to police procedure. But that but there's an audience for it. People love it. They just it, it's just and it, I, I read just recently with this whole lockdown going on, I just saw that the the, the I can't remember what it was, it was to do with the, the, the big read the, I've forgotten the name of the organization that puts together the stats. But they were talking about the increase. Nielsen. Uh, well, here then, the increase in reading is, you know, across the board has been big, bigger amongst 18 to 24 year olds. And what are the, what's mm. one of the biggest areas of reading? Fine. That and the other yeah. academics as well seem really, really popular at the moment for some reason. Well, I mean, that's sadly for obvious reasons. I think the reason that crime, it's not just because it takes you to another place the way most not fiction does. But there's also something at the end of it. It's a puzzle within a puzzle, you know. So your your mind is doing two things at once. You're enjoying the setting, you're enjoying the characters, you're enjoying the story, but you're also trying to work out what, what's going to happen at the end. I, I don't know if that's maybe true, Gordon. No, I think it's true. I think the other thing, though, is when you think, if you look at the average crime reader, I mean, and statistics will bear this out, it tends to be over 45 and female, about 70% of them. And that mm-hmm. always surprised me when I first heard about that. I always thought, you know, you think of the dynamics of crime, 
But the reality is, crime gives you, and it's, it, it works for guys and works for women, but you can see it. There's a thrill to be had that's safe because you're, you're delving into mm, a world that you don't really want. You never, you don't really want to go there, but it's a great place to go because the author can take you there. You can hide away in the corner of the room and lose yourself. And there's a wee bit of a guilty pleasure about crime books for a lot of people. You can see it when, you know, when we go to crime festivals, especially Bloody Scotland, which I'm involved in. You can see it. Yeah, we're going to come to that. The, the, the audiences are hooked on, on the authors talking about the whole process, talking about crime. There is, there is that pleasure in there in crime, which, which sounds a bit perverse, but I, it, it's just it's entertaining. It's a world you hope you're never going to have to see, and you get a glimpse of it through good authors. Yeah, it's a vicarious, vicarious thrill. Could I just get a wee bit closer to the mic again, Gordon, please? Oh, um, you were drifting away. You were probably gesturing wildly um, in, <laughs> in your enthusiasm. Double scaling is all the time. Don't worry about it. Um, now, Bloody Scotland, you touched on it there. You are one of the founder members of Scotland's biggest crime festival. A, how did you get involved? And B, how has it progressed in the, I think it's, what, what is it, nine years nine now? Years, yeah. Well, the original involvement started because when I wrote my first book, I joined the CWA, Crime Writers Association, and uh, yeah. they have a kind of lunch. Alex Gray, Sandra McGrew, or Alex Gray, the author, was the chair at the time in Scotland. And you used to go along yes. to lunches at various different places. And we went to the Millennium one time. This is 12, 11 years ago now, something like that. And we were just chatting. And Lynn Anderson and Alex had been talking about the fact they'd been at Harrogate, I think, a few years before. And they had this debate about when you were down at Harrogate, you would meet Stuart McBride, you'd meet Ian Rankin, you'd meet Val McDermott, you'd meet Chris Brookmeyer. And suddenly it started to say, well, what, why, why are we going all the way to, to Harrogate mm. to celebrate mm what is a phenomenal um, uh, genre that comes, that has got some of the best writers ever that come out of Scotland. So they were talking about this idea of a, you know, could, could there be a Scottish festival? And, and I happened to be sitting there, and I, and I remember uttering the words, I say this to Lynn a lot, I remember uttering the words, how, how hard could it be? Like, I mean, surely just invite a bunch of authors and see what happens. So about two weeks later, me and Lynn Anderson ended up having a meeting in Princess Gardens in Glasgow. Uh, Princess Square, sorry, in Glasgow. To, and that started the ball rolling. And from there, then there was obviously other people got involved in it. The, you know, Jenny Brown, the agent, got involved in it at the time. You know, Craig Robertson's come on board uh, not long after that. And we started to gather a team. And it took about 18 months to get the first one off the ground. But the, the whole ethos was simple, which is we should celebrate Scottish crime writing. That, that, why is someone not celebrating Scottish crime writing? And that, that's, yeah. that's where the, the idea started. And then the other thing was, and this is still fundamental nine years later, is you have to encourage the new writers because they're the guys in the future that are going to be selling the numbers. They're the guys that will fill the big buildings. They're the guys that are going to be doing you know, the larger tours. So, But mm. you have to get publicity. How do you do that? It's tough. It's tough to get publicity as an author. So one of the things we've always yeah. been focused on in Bloody Scotland is can we give new and debut authors an opportunity to shine and, and one of my proudest things I've done is there's a thing at Bloody Scotland called Crime in the Spotlight, which is a really simple yep. idea. And it, it, it was based on the idea that you always have a support band when you go to a gig. You go to see the main band, there's a support band, and that's how they get their start. Mm -hmm. So Crime in the Spotlight gives debut authors every year a couple of minutes, just literally a couple of minutes to say who they are, read a bit of their work just before the main authors come onto the big stage at what, what's called the Albert Hall, which can hold up to 700 people. And then, I've been there. And we've had, and you've been on stage when it's happened. And 
there's there's over 55 authors now have gone through that process, and some of those have now mm. gone on to be big authors. And that that's what makes for me that's bloody Scotland's one of its biggest wins is trying to identify and bring through the new Scottish talent and also promote it globally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's no doubt that it's created a, a buzz around Scottish crime writing that, that you know, like it or low, that uh, there is an impression that publishers um, and even outlets down south aren't quite as keen to stock or don't realise and the, the breadth and the depth of, of Scottish crime fiction. Um, and I remember my ex-agent saying to me, oh, no, you know, we we're talking about publishers, and she says, oh, no, they've got such, they've got Stuart McBride, or, or they've got Bal McDermott, so they only have one one Scottish crime writer, you know, each, yeah. you know, of each yeah. publisher. And I thought, well, do you have one English crime writer, you know? And she says, oh, no, no, no. And I said, well, why is that? And no answer was forthcoming. Uh, and I think you've done at Bloody Scotland a lot to redress that and, and put, you know, apart from the big names that we already knew, like Bama Dermot and Ian Rankin, a lot to put the everyone in the, in the spotlight and, and also to encourage people coming through. And to stay on the subject of Bloody Scotland and to touch on other festivals, it must be really frustrating for you this year. No, I, I, don't, I don't think an official decision has been made yet in terms of what um, we're doing but, this year, no, we've got a meeting, yeah, yeah. A meeting coming up uh, where we're having a discussion on it. I think at the moment we'll just be informed by the Scottish Government. That that will be the way we'll look at it, is that the advice, sure. the advice at the moment is increasingly down the line of the mass events are not going to be looked upon favourably in the short to medium term. And that no. will have an effect. But what we said was, and, and it's only because it's a practical way to do it, because we've still got a bit of time between now and then, is, is wait and see what the official guidance is from the government rather than us take a punt and say, well, we think it's okay or we think it's not okay, but there will be a point mm -hmm. at which we have to make a decision. But then the decision is, if, if you are doing it, how do you do it? If you're not doing it, do you do something else to replace it? Because digital is obviously an option. So at the moment, we're just going through what the options are and, and, and we'll have to make a call sometime, not too far in the distance. Sure, sometime. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very sad. I mean... One of the, our previous guests was your, also your showrunner, uh, Bob McDevitt, and and he was just about to. Uh, we were talking to him about I Write, which both Douglas and I were featuring, and and of course I think they got two or three nights, a couple of nights maybe in of that, and then they had to cancel it, and that was at the very beginning of yeah, the yeah. coronavirus crisis, uh, and it must be difficult for everyone involved in in these big big events, which take a whole year to to plan and, and put together uh, to have this, this I mean, but it's right across the world. It's right across everything, isn't it, Gordon? It does, it does, yeah. It's even affected my new book coming out. I mean, I know you've got your new book coming out. And by the way, dear listener, if you've got a pre-order button on your Amazon, go and, go and find Denzel's Jeremiah's Veil and just hit the pre-order button. I just finished it yesterday. I can thoroughly recommend the book to anybody. And if you want to come and beat me up afterwards because I got it wrong, I'm confident no one will. Well, that's now, 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 ladies and gentlemen, Spooks listeners, you know why Gordon Brown is on the podcast today. <laughs> is that okay, Dan? <laughs> that was very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> a chicken in the post, there is. Uh, no, that was very kind of you indeed. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And um, I, I echo those sentiments. <laughs> now, you have changed um, your name for this new book that you've got coming out. Um, what have you changed it to? So, 
what happened was once I wrote Falling in 59 Minutes, which are the first two books, I then went on a bit of a thriller fest. I've written four books starting a protagonist called Craig McIntyre with a slightly paranormal angle to it, which which are set in the States, they're not set here. His mother's Scottish, but he's American. And they've been published here and published in the US. And as thrillers go, they've done, they've done well. I mean, they've done well enough, but when I came to write a new book, so when I sat down to write a new book, um, I had a conversation with my agent at the time about what kind of book. And to be honest with you, I kind of wanted to say, right, why can't I go back to what I used to do, which falling is about from the criminal's point of view, it's not from the police point of view, 59 minutes was the same idea. But I kind of, I kind of stepped in to try. I did a little bit of police procedural stuff. I, I, I wrote one book, which was based on a police officer, which very much like the start of our conversation was like a constable who had never gone any further. Was returning home to Fraserburgh, but like my dad, who never went back. Yeah, but it sure. didn't get any traction. And when I asked, it, I got close. I mean, it really got close on a couple of occasions. But I think the problem is that arena is really crowded. And therefore, what I was trying to do was sell into a market that's already got a number of retired police officers who are reworking themselves as detectives or were trying to base themselves in some other corner of Scotland. And, and to be fair, it's a well-set mm -hmm. area. So then what happened was I, my agent said, well, what else have you got up your sleeve? And I was like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I've just finished this. But I've done one book. I've got halfway through the next one. And I had this idea, yeah. and it was it was this idea born out of the fact that we've got a small place in Spain in a town called Javier, and we meet a lot of expats when we're out there, and expats have some amazing stories. Everybody's got a backstory that's an expat. There's always a reason why they're in Spain, and it it's never straightforward, never ever straightforward. It's not just I worked for forty years, decided to try and come out here. It's never like that. And there's just a whole bunch of characters. And I come up with this idea about a pub that's in Javier. I changed the name of the town to El Descaro to give it a different name. Invented this pub, yes. which is the next Pat's pub. Put a bunch of dysfunctional guys inside it. And, and more or less wrote what, what initially started off as a heist novel. That was the original idea. It, it was kind of born out of the, the Costa del Crime. It was kind of born out of the Guy Ritchie stuff. It, the feeling was supposed to be along that level. But it kind of morphed. Sure. It morphed. It stars uh, the main protagonist is uh, uh, a girl called Daniela Coulston, who's 36 and insurance clerk or insurance uh, assistant back in the UK. Her mum dies and she goes out and she inherits the pub. But the big part of the news mm -hmm. is there's a huge bunch of money missing because all the dysfunctional expats and her mother were running one big property scam and suddenly she's on the oh. money. So the idea was, can I write a book that, that kind of has... Scottish Connection is a crime book that's set in Spain. And what I was amazed at was that it's they're quite thin in the ground. I would have thought there'd be more books set in Spain given that history, that Costa del Crime. But I'm you would have done. And I'm struggling to find it. The only thing I could find close was do you remember the BBC series El Dorado? Oh yeah, I know that oh. It's not it's not your book's not like El Dorado, is it? But it's the only thing I've found where there was a bunch of criminals in Spain, and that's twenty odd years ago. So when they came to when I when they Denzel, I can say to the audience very kindly that Denzel was, was, was instrumental in me having a conversation with, with Polygon who picked the book up. I was thankful to you for that. But when I had the conversation, the problem was I had seven books out in the name Gordon Brown. And I've always struggled sure. with the name. And the reason I've struggled with the name is if you search on Google or search on Amazon Gordon Brown, you're going to get the ex-Prime Minister. And the other thing is this was the third series. So I already had one series in 
in Fallings 59 Minutes and in America there was a sequel to Falling and I had the Craig McIntyre and I thought it might be cleaner and easier to simply step away from the name, have a, a new start with the yeah. series. And the name itself was born out of the fact it's my dad's name, but my dad was Morgan, so him being an ex-police officer, I thought it was a nice tribute to him. The only bizarre thing Lovely. about Morgan was I had to phone my brother, who's also called Morgan, because I had to say to him, <laughs> uh, by the way, Morg, uh, I might be going to use your name as the new author. And he laughed. And it reminded me, I don't know if you've seen Rocket Man, you know, the Elton John biopic? <laughs> yes, um, yeah. You know, in the back of the van when he says, I'm going to change my name to Elton, and the guitarist turns around and goes, that's my name. That's what it felt like when I had to phone my brother. So Yeah, I do, I do recall that. That was, a, it was an excellent film, actually. Um, and I do recall that that portion of it. Um, so you, you, I, I was thinking more along the lines of you were, you were trying to instruct a Welshman how to have the appropriate um, yeah, emotion. Yes, how, how do you cry? Morgan. Morgan. Yeah, Morgan Cry. Morgan um, but it's certainly a very distinctive title, a uh, name, and there's no doubt about it. And like you with Gordon Brown, I've, I've had to struggle with Denzel Myrick because, I mean, there's folk everywhere called Denzel Myrick, isn't there? I mean, it's just... You just must be inundated with calls from, from other Denzel Myricks. I am. <laughs> There is another one in Facebook. I found him, um, but he seems to have disappeared. So I'm I'm quite worried about the other Denzel Myrick. I hope things are all well with him, uh, and that um, if you're listening, Denzel, please get in touch. <laughs> so I've, this book, carry on, carry on. What were you going to say, Gordon? The other thing about Gordon Brown is when you've got a name that's it's not that famous, but relatively famous. It's amazing how many other Gordon Browns you meet. Because you, t- you tend to, people will tell you, I know another Gordon Brown, and you end up, <laughs> not Brown from Sheen, who was a rugby player, but I met a Gordon Brown that worked yes. at the AM, I worked at Gordon Brown that worked in the banks in London, I met a Gordon Brown. It's, it's the bizarrest thing that when people, oh, you're Gordon, I know another Gordon Brown, and before you know it, they've, they've given you an email address, or sent you a text, or next time you're in the pub, here's Gordon Brown. Think, why do I want to meet another person just because they get the same name? But <laughs> well, well, I famously have met only one other Denzel, not Denzel and Washington. she was a nun. No, not wasn't Denzel Washington. She was a nun, right. sister Denzel, and um, and bizarrely, even more bizarrely than than that, it turned out that her and I were related. <laughs> Would you believe that? Well, Denzel's a family name in my my family for going back many generations, and it turns out she chose the name Sister Denzel because of this, right. as a tribute to one of her forefather, grandfather, great grandfather, or something. And um, it was really, you know, I'd never thought the first person I'd meet called Denzel would be a nun, and I never thought she should be related to me. <laughs> Which rather makes an is the thing I said about Denzel Washington earlier. Um, but 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 there we go. So the book. Is called 31 the Thirty One Bones. Bones. Yeah, the Thirty One Bones, and it's out via Polygon on the second of July. So let's cross our fingers and hope that the bookshops will be back open by that time in some fashion or other. Um, I think 
I think it's possible there'll be there'll be something going on, Gordon, at that at that point. I think so. I think the other thing is we, you know, and I know the online option is there, but it'd be nice if they could find a way if they if they can open a grocery store. And there are some countries that have reopened their bookstores as part of this. Just behave yourself. Yeah, there is a way of doing it because I don't think books have ever been as important as they are now to a lot of people. Because th- this this what do you do if you're sitting in the house? It's it's why book sales are going up. So. You would hope that when they do open it, they're going to allow people to go in, be sensible, social distance. I know it's not going to resolve itself quickly, but it just feels the right thing to do to let people get their hands on books. Yeah, I was listening to a very, well, well, quite a distressing story about a young lady, uh, a teenager who was uh, stuck in a flat in London with a, a quite reasonably large family and she'd phoned the radio station and the guy said to her, "How how are you managing with with this? You know what are you what are you doing?" And and he said, "She said, you know, I just spend my whole day reading books just to escape in my head." Yeah. And I think I think that's an extreme example of what's what's happening at the moment. That people you know, there's there's nothing more immersive than reading a book. I don't mean box sets, anything else. Nothing's as immersive as actually reading because your your whole attention's on what what you're doing rather than. Now, even if you're watching the TV, your mind can drift away to back to your trials and tribulations. But by the very nature of, of reading, and especially fiction, you're you're taken to another place. Uh, so I, I wish you all the best. Now, you with the new book, you featured in a previous episode of Spooks, and that was our Spook Spanish special. That's right. That's true, Douglas. And, when Douglas, myself, and Mark Leggett were out doing, well, we do this thing, Four Blokes in Search of a Pot, uh, Neil, Neil Broadfoot, who was part of that couldn't make it so the three of us were out in Spain uh, last year doing our on stage making up a crime story alive and Douglas uh, recorded pieces of us is that the best way to say it as, as we drifted yes. the long weekend he, he, he yeah, and, his, and uh, suddenly started asking us questions in his own laconic style yes, yes. no it was a very it was a very well put together piece of and, and I keep hearing from spooks I think funnily enough uh, it brought, it was in the dark, I think it was February sometime, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and it brought home the, the sunshine to the people who are suffering and we were all dying for the summer to come and now the summer's on its way and nobody can go. out. And and one of the final questions we've got to ask, it's a new, it's a new feature here on Spooks, Gordon. We're going to ask everyone this, how much aren't you missing Douglas Skelton? <laughs> Unfortunately, Denzel, I, yeah. I, 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 have, I have been talking to Douglas somewhat more than I thought I would. In the, uh, I had this completely off-the-wall idea, which was, could we write, between me and Douglas, a serial book? You know the old ways in the 30s when they used to publish a, a chapter yeah. every week? So I kind of floated the idea to Douglas, and I said, look, how about taking his protagonist from The Blood is Still in Thunder Bay, which is Rebecca Connolly, my protagonist from 31 Bones, which is Daniela Coulston, and put the two of them together into a murder, into a murder, into a crime book. And we did it, we kind of wrote it. We, we said, right, let's have a go at this. And halfway through, we had a conversation with Polygon. And Polygon said, oh, no, we might quite like to put that on the website, you know, give it a cover, put it together and publish it every week. So currently, if you go to the Polygon or Berlin website, we're on, I don't know what chapter we're on, but we're releasing it about 1,000 to 1,200 words per week. So... As much as I would say I didn't want to have much to do with Douglas, I've had far more to do with Douglas since we locked down than I did before we locked down. Oh dear. No, 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 it's okay. No, we can all appreciate. I mean, 
Well, I, I wish you luck with that because I've had to do it as well and it's been very difficult to get over the daybed issue. I mean, that was enough for me. That's the erection of Douglas's daybed was, was a, a, a cause celebre on this pro- podcast for, for some time. Well, I won't go um, with so, you on that one. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> uh, that, so the, 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 it's a novella and it's called... Death insurance, and it's available in incrementally on the Berlin Poly. Well, yeah, the Berlin Polygon website. Douglas got that idea, of course, from his days as a child when he was reading um, Dickens in the magazines he used to get uh, when he was when he was young at school, and, and everyone enjoyed it then, yeah. and they still enjoy the it now. 1800s, that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, eighteen fifty-six. There he was. I, I, the young. I, I knew. Girl. I knew I'd seen his name somewhere else. Does he not get a credit in a couple of Dickens books for actually being a reader? He does. Yeah, I thought as much. He does, but but you've got to. You know, he's very touchy about. He's very touchy about it indeed. And plans for the future, Gordon. Just to, to finish off, um, clearly you're launching this new book, and let any of us who have something new new up our sleeves, and we we put it out there, we never really know how it's going to work or what's going to happen. Um, but assuming that you have the success your book deserves, because I've read it and really enjoyed it, what, would there be another in the series? There will be, yes. If if I currently have a conversation with that, there's 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 actually if if it works out, there's a kind of trilogy, a natural trilogy that works out of the original idea. So the second book is done in draft form, and I haven't yet got to the third one. But if I'm lucky, I'll get three out of the idea, and maybe more. The whole point of having a bunch of dysfunctional expats in a pub is it gives you some character list to play with. Of course it does, yeah. And you can shoot off in any direction and use different kind. Be careful with trilogies because I intended daily to be a trilogy. And then we got failed miserably. Now I've written the. I'm just about to start writing the ninth. (laughs) Miserable epic fail. (laughs) Anyway, Gordon, it's been an absolute pleasure. I thank you so much for coming on our podcast, and I wish you every success with Thirty One Bones. Thanks very much, Denzel. Thank you. That was Gordon Brown, ladies and gentlemen. And as this was an episode of Spooks, please feel free to look us up on your podcast provider of choice. Download, like it. We've even got a Twitter page now, at Spooks15. So get yourself on Twitter and look for us. For myself and Gordon.